Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. In the church calendar, uh, we are celebrating this week. We know next week is Easter. Some of you might not know that this week is known as Palm Sunday. It's the weekend that we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So he and his disciples had been making their way to Jerusalem for a while, and they entered into town, and they entered with a bang. Jesus made arrangements, and he, he rode in on a donkey, and the people laid down palm branches and cloaks, and the donkey walked into town with people cheering and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king, and, and he's being exalted in this triumphal entry, and yet... He knows what the week holds. And he knows that the week will not end in the same triumph that it began, at least to human eyes. And he also enters in humility. See, a king who's coming in war would be riding a horse, a charger, a war steed, but he comes riding a donkey, a king coming in peace. One of the fascinating things about the things that happened during the week between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is that so much of it was predicted in prophecy hundreds of years before he was born. Listen to what Zechariah, one of the prophets said. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, it was prophesied how he would enter in triumph. And yet as we head into the week, we see that that wasn't how the week went for him. And we see that in prophecy too. We're going to start this week in Matthew chapter 27. If you're wanting to follow along in the Bible that's in your pew, you'll find it on page 827. And we're going to spend some time there so you can get that open and wait. I'm going to tell you a couple things before we get there. First is... This whole reality of Holy Week has been brought to a different level of realness for me because over spring break, Jeff and I took our children to the Middle East for a couple weeks. We went first to Jordan, where uh, Salem Alliance has some international partners, and we introduced our kids to the work there, and we met more of the workers, and we were involved in the coffee shop and the English classes, and uh, our boys got to put on a basketball clinic, and my daughter and I got to teach a craft day, and just just being with the workers to make connections and relationships. And after that week, we, we crossed the river, as they say, into Israel and Palestine, and, and spent some time looking at the historical places where Jesus had been. So I'd asked uh, someone to snap a picture of this. This is my daughter Abigail and I on a rainy, cold day in Jerusalem uh, at the Via Dolorosa, the place that historically is named as the place where Jesus walked from the verdict of Pilate to Calvary and, and eventually to his tomb. Just bringing in a sobering sense of the intersection between this book that we've based our lives on and, and the reality of history that, that proves it to be true both by the physical places and also by what we can see in prophecy leading up to and confirming the truth of this this account that we have of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So while we were there, we're gonna, we know that 
He entered in triumph, and yet that next week, we've talked about the lonely way. We've talked about the unfair way. And this week, we're going to talk about the vulnerable way, the vulnerable way that Jesus was exposed during this, um, during this time. Before we get there, I want to tell you about a time on this trip that I felt rather vulnerable because someone I loved was, quite frankly, on the precipice of death. Um, so we were in Wadi Rum. It's a desert in Jordan. And you can see here kind of an introduction to Wadi Rum. The kids are actually on a very high peak that you can't see from that perspective, but this desert is just sand as far as the eye can see them with these rocks that just jut up out of the sand and these high rocks and cliffs. And we stopped at one that was kind of special. It's called the bridge. And you can see the bridge here. And the two dots up top are our sons. And the three and a half dots down below are my husband and myself and our daughter and the tourist who wouldn't get out of the way for my picture. It was just a beautiful place. We took a Jeep tour that's called a Jeep tour, but it's actually in the back of a pickup and did a couple hours exploring the places in the desert until we came to this Bedouin camp where we spent the night. So it's just this place with tents and you spend the night out in the desert. We ate a Bedouin dinner in a Bedouin tent that was real smoky. We drank a lot of Bedouin tea that's half sugar. And uh, by the time we headed to bed in our little tent that held six of us, we laughed harder than we've laughed together in a fam as a family in a long time. We couldn't remember the last time that we all five slept in the same room. Uh, our oldest turned 18 on the trip, and then we have a 16-year-old son and then a 12-year-old daughter, and it was just a fun experience for us. And we got up early the next morning to watch the sunrise in the desert, which was pretty spectacular. Pictures can't do it justice. And once the sun had risen, our boys said, hey, we want to climb on these rocks a little bit. I said, okay, great. Go climb on the rocks. So you'll see where they were climbing. They kind of went around the right side of this front rock and went around back behind. And we didn't see them for quite a while. And then we started hearing their voices off to the left. And so we looked up and I saw this speck and I'm like, no. <laughs> And, and then I'm like, oh, yes. And so I, if you haven't seen him yet, uh, go ahead and show him where he's at. He's up on the edge of this precipice and I'm just <gasps> down below, right? And he then climbed up that incline farther and you can see where they landed up. They, they finally ended up kind of stopping up there where you see those two white kind of narrow guys up there at the top of this hill. I said to my husband, I just have to trust that they are intelligent young men <laughs> and that it looks better from where they are than from where I am. Because I... I'm just like, any slip of your step and you're crashing down those cliffs, right? To me, it looked like they were in imminent danger of death, and yet they had a different perspective. Their perspective from up top was looking down at our Bedouin camp, and, and they could see their footholds, and they could see where they were walking, and they could see how wide the rock was that they were standing on. I couldn't see it. They had a different perspective. I was afraid. They were not afraid. I think as we read this account of Jesus, we'll find that even though it's agonizing, he had a different perspective on it than we have. He had a different perspective on it than the religious leaders or the Roman authorities or even his disciples or the people of the time. He had a viewpoint that was different than we do. So let's start reading in Matthew 27, starting in verse 26. We enter the story when Pilate has finally washed his hands and he knows he's condemned an innocent man to die, but he washes his hands anyway. And it says, so Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead tip whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. 
Pause there for a second to show you another picture. We were uh, hiking in Engedi, which is a stream in the desert, and our, my kids said, man, look at the thorns on this plant, mom. And I have no idea if this is the kind of plant that they wound around Jesus's head, but I, I can just tell you that there are big thorns in Israel. <laughs> They shoved this crown of thorn on his head. They placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. And then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. Friends, he hasn't even been led away to be crucified yet. And he's been flogged, stripped, had thorns crushed on his head. He's been mocked, he's been spit on, and he's been hit in the head by a whole regiment of soldiers. Why? for their sport, for their enjoyment, for no good reason other than brutality, having nothing to do with leading him away to be crucified. And then it says, when they were finally tired of mocking him, when they tired of their sport and their entertainment, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again, and then they led him away to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Interesting note about Simon of Cyrene. When you read this account in Mark's gospel, he makes this little side note that says, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, which leads the reader to believe that Mark's readers would have known who Simon and, excuse me, who Alexander and Rufus were. Somehow this man that carried Jesus' cross was now in the first century church connected with the body of believers. As a matter of fact, there was an archeological find that shows a gravestone that says, Alexander of Cyrene, son of Simon, with a cross on it connected to the Christian faith. Is it possible that because he was forced to carry Jesus' cross, his entire family was drawn into the body of believers in first century Christianity? Is it possible that he already knew Jesus and that's why he was kind of following closely to see what was going on? We don't know, but again, there's something so grounding about a physical reality to a confirmation of what we've read in the word. These aren't just mythical, fictional people. These are people who lived and walked this earth. After they went out, to, excuse me, and they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The soldiers gave him wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. He refused to numb the pain that he was feeling. Another interesting tidbit from the Middle East is this. When I as an American Christian, think of Calvary. I have that artistic rendition that comes into my head of a grassy knoll with three crosses silhouetted against the blue sky. Friends, that's not how Romans crucified their prisoners. They took them outside the city to the biggest thoroughfare that they could find, and they crucified them in front of as many people as they could possibly expose them to because they wanted people to see the justice of the Roman Empire against criminals. The other historical piece that's a little bit different than our Easter celebrations and our pictures is for our sensitivities, our pictures have Jesus wrapped in a cloth. I appreciate that, but that is not historically how Romans crucified their prisoners. In all likelihood, Jesus was crucified naked next to a thoroughfare right outside of Jerusalem. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Ironic thing about that sign, the Romans hung it there to mock him. 
The religious leaders argued with it being there, vehemently asking to have it taken down because they did not want it said of him. And the reality is it was the truth. This is Jesus, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. In their mockery, they're casting doubt on his teaching, on his truthfulness, on his reputation, on who he said he was. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. I find that incredibly ironic. These men knew that they had condemned an innocent man to death, and yet when he was hanging on the cross, they stood there like bullies who were so proud of standing over the person they had knocked down to mock him where he hung. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel as he let him come down from the cross right now, and then we will believe in him. And then to twist the knife, they mocked his trust in his father. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Every sphere of human influence mocked him as he hung by the side of a thoroughfare in Jerusalem. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Eloi, Elo, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Remember those prophets I talked about? Those who hundreds of years before this happened spoke through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and said what would happen? Listen to the parts of Psalm 22 written by the psalmist. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? <laughs> why are you so far away when I groan for help? Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him if the Lord loves him so much. Let the Lord rescue him. Verbatim, the psalmist prophesies about the insults that Jesus is going to receive on the cross. And then listen to this. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Even to the very way that the soldiers would gamble for who got his robe, the prophets told what would come. And friends, we have to know that Jesus knew scripture. Jesus knew what Psalm 22 said. When he walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he knew that they would be casting dice for his clothing while he hung with his nails through his hands and his feet. See, here's the thing that I think sometimes we don't understand about vulnerability. There's kind of two ways that we can look at this. One is people who are powerless. They are the vulnerable who have injustice done to them. Friends, Jesus was not powerless. This was not the vulnerability of powerlessness. This was not even the vulnerability of injustice. Yes, injustice happened, but hear this. Jesus chose this vulnerability. Jesus chose every excruciating step of the way. He told Judas when and where to betray him. 
In the garden, when Peter drew his sword, he told Peter, do you not know that I could even now call down angels and they would rescue me? And he chose not to call on those angels. Friends, if I had confidence that angels would come rescue me, I would call. (laughs) When he was before Pilate, and Pilate said, why aren't you defending yourself? He said, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you by above. As a matter of fact, long before these events happened, recorded in John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Every lash of the whip, voluntarily. The spit and the nakedness and the mockery and the being clocked in the head with a rod by soldiers carrying his cross, all of it voluntarily. Why? Why? Why would the son of the living God choose this kind of vulnerability, this kind of pain, this kind of agony? I want us to look at Hebrews 12 too to catch a glimpse of the why of why Jesus would make this choice. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? What was the joy set before him? What did Jesus see that was from a different perspective than anyone else could see? The joy set before Jesus was me. Jennifer Roth because he knew me before the foundation of the world and he loved me and he wanted to draw me to himself and be able to have relationship with me and that was the joy set before Jesus. That was his why. And you know what? You were his why. The joy set before Jesus is you because he knew you before the foundation of the world and he saw you and he said, I don't wanna be separated from him for the rest of my life. I don't wanna be separated from her for the rest of her life. I want to be in relationship with this person. We are the joy that was set before Jesus. You wonder if maybe I'm exaggerating. Read with me or here, listen what I'm gonna read from one of the other prophets from Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Jesus. He was pierced for our rebellion He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole and he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, every single one of us, like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own and yet the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. We keep reading and it said, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. How can those things be in the same sentence? It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and bring him grief. Friends, that doesn't compute in our world and in our minds. And yet it says, when his life is made as an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees, when Jesus sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. That's Isaiah 53, Verse 11, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. How is it possible that the end result of this kind of agony is that he's satisfied? 
It's because he sees the end result. Look with me at what the author of Ephesians says is the end result of his agony. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. He wanted to bring us to himself. He wanted to adopt us as sons and daughters in his family, and it gave him great pleasure. Look how he says it when he was writing to the Colossians. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Remember, all of us have gone astray. All of us were separated from God. And yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. The breaking of relationship with God in the Garden of Eden was restored by the choice of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Friends, if you're here and you're just exploring faith, you're wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do they mean when they say, you know, become a follower of Christ? Can I say this? Some of you may have wrestled with this thought because of theology that you've been exposed to, because of politics that you've heard, because of science that you've wondered about. Can I just say this? It boils down to the love of Jesus. It boils down to John 3:16 that says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life." It boils down to the fact that Jesus said that this agony was pleasure and satisfied because He had a different perspective than you and I have, because He loved us so much. So we see the why he would make this choice. It's because he saw us. But how could he make this choice? How could he knowingly choose that kind of agony? And we see that it wasn't an easy choice. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is wrestling with God, he's crying out and saying, if this cup can pass from me, please let it pass. But not my will, but yours be done. He surrenders to the Father in that moment, and yet he agonizes over this choice because, to be clear, he suffered. The cross was something to endure. This wasn't an easy, okay, I'll make this choice, and then it was easy. It was incredibly hard. So how could he make that choice? The first thing is that he trusted his Father. He trusted his father. Friends, the only way that we can trust someone to that extent is to really know their nature and their character deeply and to know that they are trustworthy, that it is worth risking pain and agony and abandonment because of who that person is. And Jesus knew his father that well. He routinely went away to pray. He routinely said that he only did what the father told him to do and he only said what the father said to do. He relentlessly kept his sole focus on the Father, his gaze unwavering even to the point of death because he trusted him that much. He trusted his Father. Another reason he could do this is because he walked in humility. Fascinating phrase that's captivated me in this last week. Look with me again at this Hebrews 12 two. It says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. What does it mean to scorn shame? What does it mean when the whole world sees you crucified as a criminal, naked on a thoroughfare, your entire reputation destroyed, everything about who you said you were and what you stand for questioned and mocked, 
In our world standard, that is a huge amount of shame. And yet this says that he scorned that shame, that he thought little of it, to think little of the shame that the world thinks is big because he just didn't care what the people thought. You see, humility is being willing to be seen in both our strength and our weakness. And Jesus was fully exposed in his weakness on the cross, but he was also fully exposed in his strength. What an amazingly strong thing to be able to make the choice to endure that kind of agony because you have a different perspective on what the end game is. Philippians 2 tells us that even though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to be a man and humbled himself even to death on a cross. Jesus walked in humility. How did he make this excruciating choice? By trusting his father and walking in humility. And finally, he made this choice because of love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 tells us this about Jesus' love. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. How did he make this choice? Because God is love and he chose love over his own protection. He chose love over avoiding pain. See, vulnerability is the doorway to love. Vulnerability, the vulnerability of Jesus blew open the door for us to be able to live in his love. And the vulnerability that he invites us into as he invites us to walk in the way that he walks also blows open the door for love in our own life. But here's the thing. We tend to resist vulnerability with every fiber of our being, don't we? I think out of fear, fear of rejection, fear of accusation, fear of pain and loss and grief. There's any, any variety of fears that keep us from really living with this open heart and being willing to be vulnerable with those around us. Matter of fact, this vulnerability is avoided brick by brick by brick. We build this wall of self-protection in our life by the little decisions that we make. So, so maybe I've been in this conversation that's been really painful and I go, I am not ever bringing up that topic again brick. Maybe I've been in a conversation with someone and they said something really painful and I'm, I'm not talking to that person again, brick. Maybe you're a man who was taught the American myth that says men are not supposed to cry. Okay, I got to get my emotions all in check and not show anybody, brick. Maybe you're a woman and you've been hit by the American myth that you're too much and your highs are too high and your lows are too low and girl, you have got to bring those emotions into something acceptable, brick. Broken relationship, brick. Contradicted at work, brick. Teased by the kids at school, brick. And we build up this wall, brick by brick, of self-protection. And here's the problem. This wall that we build to keep out the bad and the hard and the negative, the pain and the sorrow and the loneliness and the conflict, we can't self-select what it keeps out. So it also keeps out the joy and the love and the hope and the creativity and the friendship. We are a prisoner behind the wall of our own making. And in Jesus' vulnerability, he's inviting us to follow him and let that wall down. And yet it's at the risk of pain and loss. How do we follow him in this vulnerable way? 
C.S. Lewis was writing in response to a philosophy of the time that said, um, you should really only love God because he's the only one who doesn't hurt you and you shouldn't have any human love that, that could hurt that bad. So, so hold back on your love. There was this philosophy of just don't love that much so it won't hurt that much. And here's what he had to say about it, which I think really speaks to us today in this topic of vulnerability. It says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. God invites us to vulnerability because it is the door to love and love is vulnerable. It requires an open heart. And yet we have this default reaction to put up bricks rather than living with that open heart. If we look at what Jesus refused to do in that last week of his life, we kind of can catch a glimpse of the ways that you and I add bricks to our wall. So we look at Jesus and we see that first of all, he didn't hide and he didn't avoid. He knew when he was traveling to Jerusalem that the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Matter of fact, people along the way said, don't go to Jerusalem um, because they want to kill you. Matter of fact, his disciples said, all right, we can't take, out of, take talk him out of it. Let's go and die with him. <laughs> he knew what he was marching towards, and yet he didn't hide in the hills of Galilee somewhere where they couldn't find him. And when he got there, he didn't avoid the arrest. He told Judas where he would be and when he would be there. He chose not to avoid it. I tend to be a person who avoids pain. I avoid risk because I don't want to feel that. And so one of the ways I do that is by numbing. Remember, Jesus refused to numb. But some of the ways we numb is by working extra hard or by pursuing success at all costs. Or sometimes it's the, the, our addictions, alcohol or drugs or, or even... Um, for me, it's media. It's the thing that I go to when I'm just kind of tired in life and I just kind of want to check out. I avoid the reality of what's going on in my life and relationships. Jesus refused to avoid. For some of you, there might be some ways that you're avoiding that you don't even realize. I wonder if there are some of you who are married and you're in a difficult season and just coincidentally, every night after the kids are in bed, you're watching a good show or a game or you're just getting a little bit more work done on our computer or you're buried in a good book. And just coincidentally, you never have a chance to talk about that thing that really could open the door to more love in your marriage. And some of you would say to me, yeah, but Jennifer, we've had that conversation eight times and I'm not willing to put myself out there again. And I would say this, I cannot promise that the ninth time would be the time for breakthrough, but I can promise that if you don't have the conversation, you won't get breakthrough. And it may be that you need some help with that breakthrough. It may be that it's not gonna be a conversation that breaks through in the area that you're struggling, but we cannot avoid, we've got to lean in, ask for help, ask a pastor, ask a friend, ask a therapist, but don't avoid the hard conversations because there's a risk of pain. Jesus didn't fight or defend himself. Oh man, this one is hard. He was the perfect son of the living God and he didn't point out to them that he was perfect. 
He didn't defend himself. He didn't speak up and say, I'm right and you're wrong. I have told you here before that I am a recovering perfectionist. Not fighting and defending does not fit in the perfectionistic worldview. You gotta maintain the image that you're doing a good job here and you gotta let people know when they're wrong about you. And he didn't do that. He refused to defend. He refused to speak out. Matter of fact, he refused to resist or to blame or to resent or even to punish. Do you know that one of his last phrases from the cross was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Father, the one who I know, whose character is good, the one who I have entrusted myself to, because of who you are, I want to walk in forgiveness. Would you forgive them? I want to release them. I will not resent. I will not hold a grudge. I will not punish. Even though they have been unrighteous and unjust. Why? Because they know not what they do. The longer I've spent with this phrase, the more mystery it is to me. Because here's the deal. They knew exactly what they were doing. The soldiers who nailed him to the cross, they knew they were crucifying a man. The high priests who had an unjust trial and sent an innocent man, they knew that they were condemning an innocent man to die. As a matter of fact, Judas got remorseful a little bit later on and he returned to the high priest and he said, no, we can't do this. An innocent man has been condemned to die. And they said, what is that to us? What is that to us? They knew what they had done. Those soldiers who pulled out the whole regiment just so that they could make sport of him and brutally beat him, they knew exactly what they were doing. So how could he have said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do? They did know what they were doing. So what did he mean? Did they just not know that they were crucifying the son of the living God? Is that why they should be worthy of forgiveness? Because they didn't know who he was? But does that mean it was okay if they were crucifying a different innocent man and brutally beating him for no good reason? I wonder if that phrase, they know not what they do, actually applies to me and applies to you. I wonder if none of us fully grasp what sin does at its core in the spiritual realm, in our hearts, in the hearts of those that we wound and that we hurt. What if none of us really fully grasp what it means when we follow the path of sin. And what if God is inviting us like Jesus to look at those who have hurt us either unintentionally or very intentionally or even maliciously and say, Father, because I know who you are and because I know you are good and trustworthy and because I know who I am in light of you, would you release forgiveness to them and would you release forgiveness through me because I don't want to blame and resent and punish. I want to walk in the freedom that comes from releasing this to the one who judges justly because even if they know what they're doing, they don't actually know what they're doing. We need to examine ourselves and ask, God, where do I resist being vulnerable by, and fill in the blank with maybe some of these words up here or something else that God has laid on your heart where you see that you know that you come to that brink of being open and vulnerable and risking with somebody or some situation. Maybe it's taking a new job or moving out of state or looking for healing in a relationship. Here's what I would ask. Jesus knew his why. And it was only because he had that higher perspective of the end game that he could make the choice of vulnerability. And you and I need to know our why. We can't make the choice for this kind of a vulnerability unless we know why we're doing it. 
So I'd ask you, what is your why? Jesus saw us. That was his why. Who do you see? Is there a relationship that needs healed? Is there a friend or a neighbor or a parent on one of your kids' sports teams who just doesn't know Jesus and needs to see the vulnerability of Jesus lived up out through your love? Maybe it's the eternal why of arriving in heaven and having God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And as you think about that why, as you think about what is it in your life that could motivate you towards that kind of vulnerability, I also invite you to think about what is hindering me from engaging in that kind of vulnerability. And from that place of what you're seeing in your own life, in your own situation and circumstance and relationships, I would ask us this question, how do we do what Jesus did? How do we walk in that kind of vulnerability? And I would say it's the same way that he did. The first is trust. We've got to trust Father God that his good plan is good even if it looks like agony and pain and suffering right now. From the bottom of that cliff, I was freaked out. But from the top, from their perspective, my boys understood what was going on. Will we trust that the Father has a different perspective? You know, I have to add this, up on that cliff, when they came down and reported back, my middle son said, oh, mom, don't worry. I was always at least one step away from down, falling down a big place. I was like, son, just for your mother's sake, could you make that two steps away, please? I didn't really feel comforted by that fact. And so I would ask you, do you know the father? In order to trust him, you have to know him. And I would say, do you know the father? For those of you who've never begun a relationship with him, I would say, do you know the Father, his good heart towards you, his love for you? That may not have been what was represented to you by other Christians that you've known. Would you explore? Would you ask questions? Would you lean in? And for those of you who do know God and you would say, yes, I know the Father, I would look you in the eye and I would ask you this question. Do you know the Father the way Jesus knew his Father? To trust him with that kind of vulnerability and that kind of risk. And the follow-up question is this, what would it take to know his nature and character more deeply? No matter how long you have walked with God, he has an infinite amount to be known. And there's something that we could know deeper. And it may be as simple as praying and saying, God, would you reveal more of your character to me that I might trust you the way Jesus does? Second, humility. Are you willing to be seen in both strength and weakness? One of the primary problems in our vulnerability is our pride. We have so much invested in maintaining the image that we want people to see. But can I just say this? The wall that we build up in self-protection to only show people the part that we want them to see, it also blocks their ability to see our uniqueness, our beauty, our strength, the way God has created us. See, we're not actually showing them our real self. We're only showing them our false self if it's behind the wall of our self-protection. So are we willing to be seen in both strength and weakness? And then what would it take then to stop maintaining the image you want others to see? For me, it took going to a therapist for several years to identify what those bricks were and to take a look and count the cost and say, do I really want this wall knocked down? And the third thing is love. Is love worth the risk of pain and loss? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we can't do it without vulnerability. Vulnerability is the door to love. Is love worth that risk? Stop hardening your heart against love 
because you are losing out on what God has as his fullness of life for us. What would it take to bring down the walls of self-protection and live with an open heart? I've had this picture in my head over this morning and it's this, it's this thought of a hurricane coming through and, and knocking down this brick wall. And a hurricane is, is, a, is a tragedy and it has all this destruction and we would see it as pain and loss. And yet when the whole thing is done, the wall is down and I can see out and others can see in and I can be known for who I truly am. There may be a hurricane going on in your soul right now and I don't know what that looks like, but I would say this, it's an opportunity because vulnerability is the doorway to love. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God whose goodness sometimes baffles us. And Lord, we are your children as we sit here in every mind in this place, there is this awareness of what you've been bringing to mind. And in those places, those places of fear, of awareness, of wanting to lean in, I pray that you would whisper courage to your heart, that you would remind us of your deep and abiding love for us and that you would give us the courage to live with vulnerability and so enter into your deep love and your calling on our life. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.